Sierra. Hey, Chris. How are you? I am good. Guess what? What? We are recording our last interview of the, what is this, our third or fourth season? Oh, this is like our fourth or fifth season. I'm pretty sure. I think it's the end of our fourth season. Yeah. We don't really think about it as seasons because we just number the, the episodes, but we take a break in the summer and usually run some reruns. We'll see what we do this year, but today we are... <laughs> we might run some reruns. We might just ignore everything for three months because we're all exhausted. Yeah, I mean, it's summer, you know, so go enjoy yourselves and don't have any deadlines if you can avoid it. And I'll do the same, which means not giving myself deadlines. So... I don't know if it's appropriate or not, but, you know, today is another... Why are you looking at me like that? Holy well, shit. I don't know. I'm worried when you say, I don't know if it's appropriate. It could go in so many different directions. So oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anxiety when you say that. I know. <laughs> I, I have a, I have, we have a habit of going off the rails, but no, no. This, this interview is another one that basically highlights that I'm not living well. And as a 50-year-old, I'm like, ah, shit. I don't yes. want to adjust my lifestyle to be healthier. But I was browsing through the article and I'm like, Chris and I are on the opposite spectrum of our chronobiology profile or chronotype. And like, that's never been highlighted more than when we attempt to share a room. <laughs> I know. Uh -huh. Under the covers working early in the morning and like you sneak into the room late at night to not wake me up. It's hilarious. So we've had a few sleep researchers on before and i make me feel bad about my sleep i'll say that i read their articles and then i go oh i identify myself in this article as the unhealthy phenotype damn it i'm technically the healthy phenotype but i don't have good quality sleep but i am still a morning person so i feel like you know there is variation within each phenotype so for those of you out there wondering who in the hell are they going to be talking to today about sleep we're going to be talking to actually uh, Kristen Knudsen, who came out of the same program I did. So I actually know Kristen's work from when I was in grad school. We were not in grad school at the same time, but we did share the same advisor, Larry Schell, who has also been on the show. Carrie just went, because oh, I guess she did not know that. I didn't know that, no. Kristen is an associate professor of neurology. Her specialty is sleep medicine and preventative medicine, a.k.a. epidemiology at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern. And her research focuses on, as you may have already figured out, sleep, circadian rhythms, but also the health outcomes or health issues that are in some cases associated with sleep and sleep quality, cardiometabolic diseases like diabetes, obesity. And then she also focuses on real world assessments of habitual sleep patterns, right? So what I'm hoping is that she'll give me a real-world assessment of my sleep and tell me that I'm going to be fine. Hey, Kristen, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Hi, Kristen. Yeah. I don't Hi. think we've ever met, so nice to meet you. Yeah, I was trying to figure that out. It's been so long since I've been to an HBA in person. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day. And it's that time of year where everybody is overloaded, overstressed. We kind of start the show the same way every single time, and that's getting to know a little bit more about the person, the scientist mm -hmm. behind the science. And so maybe you could tell us a little bit about your background and kind of your journey to how you got to where you mm. are today. 
Absolutely. And yeah, my journey, my career trajectory has not exactly been linear. Born and raised in Fargo, North Dakota. Went undergrad to McGill, Montreal, where I studied English. So, you know, going to French-speaking Canada to study English kind of really says it all. Moved to Chicago for a few years where I worked as staff at Northwestern. Then I went to grad school. I wanted to study human health from a biocultural perspective. And so I ended up at SUNY Albany to work with Larry Schell, initially working on some of his pollution and birth weight data. I know Chris can speak to some of that probably. But, you know, not getting paid a lot as a graduate student. I went back to Northwestern to work for a summer. So my job right before graduate school, I was secretary to the chair in the neurobiology and physiology department at Northwestern. And the chair at the time was Fred Turek. And he is a sleep and circadian researcher in animal models. So that's really where I learned about the field of sleep and circadian rhythms. And so I went back to work for him one summer helping write grants. And he asked me, well, who in anthropology is studying sleep and health? And I was like, oh, that's a great question. Let me check. <laughs> there weren't that many, let me put it that way. So I went back to Larry Shell and said, guess what? I want to change my topic. And so I ended up going to the University of Chicago to work with Eve Van Cotter because she did sleep in humans. And as an anthropologist, I was more interested in humans than hamsters. No offense to hamsters. And so I was there. I showed up as a graduate student still, finished my PhD while working, became a postdoc, became research faculty, became tenure track faculty at University of Chicago, all studying sleep and circadian rhythms. And then in December 2016, I moved back to Northwestern. So I came full circle. And now I've been at Northwestern as associate professor, continuing to study sleep and circadian rhythms. And I'm a collaborator of Fred Turk, who used to be my boss. How's that? <laughs> Perfect. And I wonder how hamster uh, sleep compares, but I won't go off the, the wheel here by uh -huh. asking that question. <laughs> Okay, so you have a bunch of new pubs out. The one you shared with us in Chronobiology International, and you are first author with Malcolm von Schantz, and it's called Associations Between Chronotype Morbidity and Mortality in the UK Biobank Cohort. So let's just start with the basic, what a chronotype is, and then how many there are, and how do I know what chronotype I am? Well, so chronotype comes from chronos for time. And so it's really trying to capture the time of day they prefer to do things or actually do things. So you can think it more colloquially as are you a night owl or are you a morning lark person, right? Or somewhere in between. And so we have instruments that have been developed like one that's even called like the morning evening this questionnaire to really figure out when do you prefer to do certain activities to determine are you more night person or more of a morning person or somewhere in between. And in the UK Biobank, they actually only used one of the questions from this larger instrument that really was strong predictor of the overall score anyway, which just asked, do you consider yourself to be a definite morning person, more morning than evening, more evening than morning, or a definite evening person? It's self-reported. So you tell me what your chronotype is. And people seem to have a sense of, of which one they are. So I'm going to push that back to you, Chris, and ask you, which answer would you provide? And I'm coming to you too, Kara, so you're not off the hook. Yeah, well, we have issues with this. So sadly, I'm going to put myself in the definite evening. And I say sadly because I read your article. I'm having some agita about my future health. What about you, Kara? So I'm definitely an early bird, but this is also something that I find interesting is that was not always the case. You know, childhood, adolescence, teenage years, college years, even during grad school, I was a night owl. And then becoming faculty, I had to completely change my pattern. And now that's stuck. And I'm in such a rigid routine that like, 
I can't be a night owl anymore. I completely collapse in on myself if I stay up too late. The change with aging is well demonstrated across, you know, mm-hmm. societies that, you know, as kids, you're kind of sleeping a lot. But and then teenagers is when there's this biological shift towards eveningness. I mean, getting them asleep before 10, forget about it. And then as we age, it's just gradually shifts later and later. So, you know, older adults tend to be more morning person than they used to be. So it does change as we get older, but it is thought to be, you know, about 50% genetic or inherited and the rest is more behavioral or social factors that influence like your job when you have to wake up and when you go to bed and, and then that can affect your clock. So then what do our patterns, Chris being the night owl and me being, you know, the early morning person, what does your work predict our health should be like? Should be like? Should, yeah, should. On average. So, you know, the reason I picked that paper is it got a lot of attention because apparently a lot of journalists are night owls. It was really the first to look at chronotype and mortality risk. And what we found is that the definite evening types, sorry, Chris, had a 10% increased risk of dying compared to the definite morning types. And then those in the middle, there was really no increased risk. So it seemed to really be the definite morning versus the definite evening types. And in addition, all the different types of disease groups we looked at, it was more prevalent in the definite evening types compared to the morning types after you took into account age, because as I said earlier, older people are more likely to be morning types. So once you take into account age, definite evening types are associated with a lot of different health outcomes in a negative way. Let's talk about the genetic component. So let's say Chris is genetically geared towards being a night owl, Mm -hmm. but his job, or you can talk about shift workers, they're kind of forced into the opposite pattern. Do you have Mm -hmm. any idea in how like somebody who is biologically predispositioned one way, but behaviorally is forced in another way, how that might impact health? Well, Kara, you really got to the crux of it. And what I've been saying about this paper all along is I don't really think there's anything inherently about being a night owl that puts you at risk. I think it's because you're a night owl forced to live in a morning person's world. That's where the problem comes in, is your rhythms don't match the social expectations of when you need to be up and behaving. And so this really comes back to our circadian rhythms, which are those internal about 24-hour rhythms that we have in our body. You know, all organisms have them, so they must be serving a pretty vital function. And what we think they're doing is they're helping our body to anticipate day versus night and organizing physiological processes and behaviors. They're doing the right things at the right time and not doing the wrong things at the wrong time. And But humans, humans being humans, we don't always listen to our body. And so we do things at the wrong time. And when that happens, like if we eat at a time when our body isn't thinking we should be eating, we aren't able to process it properly. And so this can be compounded when somebody's a night owl and trying to wake up early and trying to behave like they're a morning person or even an intermediate person. And then, of course, go back on days off to their night owl habit. It's like they're flying back and forth to Europe every week force the rhythms to fit an external world that doesn't actually match. And I think that's where the problem comes up. Okay. I feel a little bit better because you've basically just (laughs) described like the last 20 years of grad school kids and me trying, trying to fit into a schedule. I used to, and I'll, I'll say this really quick, an illustrative example, since we both went to the same grad program, I was living an hour and 40 minutes away kids were young and I'd get up every morning at 5 a.m. and I'd be so tired that I'd have to sleep in the shower, uh, lay down in the shower. Like I would get up and I'd go lay down there to keep me from going back to sleep, but to like try to wake me up, take a little nap. And then I would stop at rest stops all the way up and get coffee like repeatedly and 
years and years later, I still haven't adjusted. I, I never started waking up early and going to bed later. I just felt like shit all the time. Yeah, no, and, and it's hard. Like people who are de- very, very delayed and don't want to be, you know, they'll often seek medical help. And there are treatments, if you will, which is light treatment. You have to do it at the right time of the day, every day for the rest of your life. And that's really hard to do. I think the other challenge night owl have a couple of them is one light exposure so we know light's really important for our rhythms and that's on both ends you want bright light during the daytime particularly in the morning to keep your clock synchronized to the actual sunset sunrise but you don't want it at night and so night are awake at a time where it's artificial light and it's not going to be as bright and it's not necessarily the best time for them to be exposing themselves to light i mean this is getting better but for the longest time being awake, diet options are limited. You know, your physical activity options are limited. So, you know, if you want to live a healthy lifestyle as a night owl, you're going to have to work a little bit harder. You know, that is sort of one of the messages is if you're a night owl, yeah, we're all told to follow a healthy lifestyle, but it might be particularly important, a, a night owl on top of it, that you, you know, maintain a healthy diet, try to get the exercise, try to get the sleep you need, because you might be at a greater risk because, like I said, you're a night owl trying to live in a morning person's world. So I just want to take a step back but we we just dove straight into the conclusions and how we can fix our life and what i'd like to step back and ask you about is how you did the study this is like a huge huge sample and it's a uk sample so i wonder if you could speak to that well obviously i can't take credit for the uk biobank this is a large study that started several years ago and they enrolled about a half a million people from the united kingdom they've collected you know, many, many, many health measures, demographics, genetics, like there's lots of data available and it's available to any scientist who's interested and wants to apply. It appealed to us because they did have this question on chronotype. So there was no other large observational study that had collected chronotype, even, even though it's a single measure, it's still in half a million people. And was also able to follow people over time to collect mortality data through the National Health Service, which is also something that's an advantage to being in the UK. And so the fact that we were able to finally look at is chronotype related to mortality risk, as well as all these other morbidity measures, was sort of an unprecedented opportunity. And so we jumped on it. So another really interesting part about this were some of the other associations that are maybe not quite as expected, or people reading this might not really see the immediate connection. So the evening chronotype was associated with various psychological disorders, as well as asthma and GI disorders and neurological issues. So could you kind of walk us through what connections and if it's at this point, just correlation, or do you think there might be a causation and in which direction? Yeah, right. Well, obviously, this particular study can't get at causation. In theory, I guess it could go bidirectional. Like if you're unhealthy or unwell, perhaps you might feel like being up at night more. But, you know, again, I think a lot of this comes back to our circadian rhythms and our circadian system. There are circadian rhythms and the clock machinery, if you will, which is molecular machinery found throughout the body. So a long time it was thought that, you know, our circadian clock was in our brain and the suprachiasmatic nucleus, and then it just synchronized all the tissues. But then, you know, a few decades ago now, they realized that this molecular machinery for the clocks is found in tissues throughout your body. And what that means is circadian rhythms are important for tissues throughout your body, from your lung to your liver, to your brain, to your heart. Circadian rhythms play a really important role. And anything that disrupts those circadian rhythms could have 
physiological consequences. So that's why you might see greater GI distress. You're eating at the wrong time of the day. You'll see neurological effects. You'll see, you know, cardiovascular effects because your circadian rhythms are not aligned with one another, either internally with the external world or even all these different clocks within your body. They may not agree about what time it is. And this level of disruption can have an effect because, again, to come back to how I said, circadian rhythms are thought to play an important role, which is making sure you're doing things when you're supposed to be doing them. If you're not, that's when disruption can occur. And then physiological functioning is not as optimized as it could be. So that makes sense to me. And so the GI issues would then obviously be eating at midnight, waking up with heartburn. Yeah. Okay. What about asthma? People have recognized that asthma symptoms are exacerbated or worse at night. So there are circadian rhythms in a lot of hormones and a lot of secreted factors, including inflammation and inflammatory factors. So if your rhythms are such that you increase inflammation, you increase the response to exposures. If you're exposed to things that trigger your asthma and then your response is exacerbated in some way because of circadian disruption, then that might lead to greater asthma response. So anything that impairs our ability to deal with an exposure is going to increase the likelihood that it would develop into a chronic problem. We said some of these relationships seem more intuitive, psychological disorders, but I wonder if you could you could speak to that. Do you think, for instance, there is a greater tendency for evening people to be evening people because they have psychological disorders or how much there is there among that group? Right. I think that is a good example of where this could go both way and sort of feed into each other. So, you know, being a night owl, you know, light is a treatment for seasonal affective disorder. And so if you are up more at night when things are darker, that could exacerbate any tendencies or vulnerabilities you might have to depression, for example. And then if you're depressed, you may be more likely to isolate yourself and stay awake at night by yourself. So it could become this vicious cycle where Environmental exposures, which are different depending on if you're awake during the day or if you're awake more at night, could exacerbate or trigger any kind of depressive or other psychological episode. And then that affects your behavior. It only makes the situation worse, makes you more isolated, makes you more likely to stay up at night. And so another kind of interesting possible source of variation here is kind of the cultural approach to sleep that in America, we definitely fetishize this idea of, you know, get up early, get to work, consume inordinate amounts of caffeine in various forms. And then, you know, go home, rinse and repeat. Whereas the European view is like, hey, or at least the, the view in Spain, which I remember well, is the siesta midday. And then you end up staying up actually quite late, but you have that nice little nap. So what about the cultural variation of sleep and how much these kind of the visions between, you know, the early morning person versus the night owl person, how can that apply cross-culturally? Well, I think that's a great question. And I think we need a lot more work in this area in different parts of the world. Most of sleep and circadian research has been in, you know, westernized countries or wealthy, you know, Asian countries. And so we don't really understand behavior and timing as much around the world. Certainly access to electricity is going to affect just how late you stay up at night. So I did work in Haiti where, you know, you basically go to bed when the sun goes down. You may not fall asleep right away, but there's really not much else to do. And we know that actual sunlight and behavior can influence how much you are awake at night. So there was this interesting study done by a group in Colorado. Ken Wright led this study. He took some undergrads camping and he measured, there's an objective measure of chronotype, which is melatonin onset, dim light melatonin onset. He did it before camping and they're all over the map. You got some earlier people, you got some later people, brought them up camping for, I don't know, a week or two with no electricity, took their phones away. I don't know how he got them to do that, but he did. And 
they all align. All their melatonin, they came close together and came closer to when sunset occurred. So following the natural light dark cycle may minimize differences in this chronotype measure, whether it's just forcing everybody to get up and follow the light dark cycle and that synchronizes their clocks better, but you still have the same underlying differences and they just would were masked because staying up late, there's nothing to do. And so they just are behaviorally going to bed earlier than they might otherwise. Or is this morning like tonight owl range that we see in westernized countries with electricity, is that a consequence of now we have the options of staying up late, waking up early? The fact that we do see genetic associations suggests it's not entirely driven by these social, cultural, environmental factors, but they certainly play a huge role. This is one of several pieces that you've had come out lately. You want to talk about some of your other work? Sure. (laughs) So, you know, my work in general, I'm interested in, you know, sleep and circadian rhythms vary among different populations and groups. And so some of my work is looking, you know, I collaborate around the world with people looking at sleep in relation to electricity in Mozambique, for example. I'm doing work in Brazil looking at sleep. Like I said, I went to Haiti because I just want to really spread the science beyond just the United States and Europe and, and Japan, for example. I want to understand what sleep patterns look like around the world. And then what are the consequences for health? And, and is it the same everywhere? Like I think you brought up earlier, is being a night owl problem in the UK, but maybe it's not a problem elsewhere. We don't know the answer to that question because we haven't been able to look at it as closely in other parts of the world. So you study sleep and, you know, we tend to obsess over our own work and let it kind of bleed into our own lives. So how has your research impacted you and your sleep? Do you find yourself obsessing about when you get up and when you go to bed? (laughs) I probably self-selected to sleep because I was already, I think, a natural long sleeper. And so I wanted to be with a group that would be more empathetic if I didn't want to come into work. I can tell you, you know, early on when I was at University of Chicago, there was a group of physicians in neurology who wanted to do a research grant with sleep. And my mentor and I were trying to work with them and they would always set the meetings at like 7 a.m. or something insane. And she and I were like, we're not going. <laughs> and so they sent an email saying, well, clearly sleep researchers do not show up to meetings before 9 a.m. So we need to reschedule. I'm like, yeah, you do. <laughs> so it's nice to be, you know, in a field where sleep is respected, at least most of the time. I try to get at least eight hours. I need eight hours. That said, certainly when I had a kid, that was not a possibility. Worst thing you can do for your sleep is have children. I think we all know that. But, and then my poor child, you know, I certainly am quite strict with her bedtime and at night as, as best as I can. Yeah, you know? <laughs> I try. Try my best. Your the article pointed out was that the negative health consequences are actually associated with every single type, right? It's just that when you start adding in variables to like control for things, it increased among the older age cohort in the evening types. Is that right? So, I mean, if you look at unadjusted, the prevalence of the comorbidities was highest in the morning types. And that's because that's where more older people were. So obviously the older we get, the more likely we are to accumulate health problems. But so I had to take into account age because age and and chronotype are so correlated. And once you take into account age, so, so somebody, you know, two people are the same age, the one who's the evening type is more likely to have worse health or greater risk of mortality than the definite morning type of the same age. So I wonder if you did look at parental status or if there is a hard misalignment there that causes health consequences. Well, I think that, again, that comes back to this misalignment issue. It's like, Mm -hmm. is it not just being a night owl, but relative to when they're doing other factors? And that's not data we had in the UK Biobank, but in other studies, you know, looking at 
whether someone feels they're a night owl versus a morning person, but when do they have to go to sleep and wake up? When is their job? And it's really that disconnect that matters. And there's some who've looked at shift work and finding that certain shifts, night owls do much better at and morning people suffer and the reverse. And so if an employer was wise, they would assess chronotype for scheduling purposes because they would get the most productive happiest workforce if they're working at the time they want to be working for, you know, for industries that have around the clock shifts. I'm wondering if there's a doe hat effect for chronotype. Like, can you socialize your kids to have a certain chronotype? And does that affect their health in adulthood? Hmm. I mean, I don't think we have any good longitudinal studies. I mean, we know, like I said, that when kids become teenagers, they all tend to shift later, but not all to the same degree. And so I think understanding just as a lifestyle trajectory, like we study any health behavior, like if you learn that behavior, that habit, if you will, early in life, can that healthy habit continue for the rest of their lives and benefit them? And I don't think we have studies on that, but certainly would be something I'm going to keep an eye on as much as I can control anything in one's child, <laughs> trying to get them to go to bed on time and get them up for school. Yeah. Take their phone away. Wish me luck. She doesn't have a phone yet. So. Other than trying to control your child's sleep patterns, what's next for you? Where do you see this research taking you? Yeah, like I mentioned, I'm doing a study in Brazil. So polysomnography is the gold standard for measuring sleep. It's not chronotype. And so we're doing a full polysomnography recording where we've done about 1,300 now. Despite the COVID pandemic, we had to shut down for a little while, of course. And we want to repeat this so we can do longitudinal type of work looking at changes in sleep and the association with cardiovascular and metabolic outcomes and, and, and particularly looking by gender because we know sleep varies by gender and as we age sleep changes differently between men and women and I want to understand how that might affect gender differences in cardiovascular and metabolic disease. We do have measures of chronotype in this same study and they're actually very morning types whereas Sao Paulo are very evening types so we can't say it's something about being Brazilian so it's you know this is a small town in Brazil so it's probably more having to do with being a small town with agricultural industry. And so that's one study. And then doing more epi studies in the United States, understanding racial disparities in sleep and how they might impact other racial and ethnic health disparities is, is another area of interest of mine. And then understand why, what are the underlying reasons for differences in sleep? Eventually, not just to say, oh yeah, so this is why they're different, but hopefully so that I or others can figure out ways to improve sleep in those who are unable to get the sleep they need or want. So aside from sleep and anthropologizing and parenting, what do you do for fun? Like there's time after all that? Um, I don't know if there if there is. It depends on your sleep budget. How much time do you carve out of sleep for fun? Well, I would never do such a thing. Of course not. Of course not. Now, I mean, you know, I like reading sci-fi horror books, watching sci-fi horror films. What are you reading? Well, I love Dean Koontz. I'm right now in the middle of the Wheel of Time series. Uh, that's a commitment. Class. That it is. is. A huge I know. Commitment. I know. It's a lot. And I don't know if you watch the TV show, but it's years away. Mm. But I haven't finished the series. So now I'm reading the book and, and I'll have in the back of my mind something that happened. I'm like, wait, did that happen in the book or did that happen in the TV show? I'm so confused. I, I must always ask because this is something Chris and I share a deep love of The Expanse. Have you read oh, yeah. The Expanse book? Oh, well, I haven't read it. I haven't read it. Oh. I've watched all the shows. My oh, nephew has read, read it. it. It's great. It's it's how many, how many so, books like, are there? The last one nine. just came out. Number nine just came oh, out. Oh, so that's just as year. much as the Wheel of Time. I don't know. I feel like the books are larger for Wheel of Time, but like, no, the Expanse books are also sizable. Are you looking uh, at them right now? You keep glancing over them. Yeah, I'm looking <laughs> at myself. Yeah. And also I was reading, I remember I had started Wheel of Time 
during my dissertation fieldwork, and I had to physically rip the book in half because it required me to backpack out and limit weight. Oh, and so like I would take half the book with me, and then with a reration, the other half of the book would come, <laughs> and I'd switch out. That's commitment. <laughs> <laughs> the anyway, sacrifices sorry. we make for research. That's true. Anyway, so traveling and sci-fi and horror, any other fun things or traveling coming up as things have kind of opened up more these days? Yeah, well, I went to the World Sleep Society Congress in March, which was in Rome. So that was nice. Although I have to admit, I was a little nervous because it fortunately coincided with my husband's spring break. So he could be back in Chicago to take care of our child while I traveled. But I was worried because, you know, the, the restrictions, if I tested positive in Rome, they wouldn't let me back for seven to 10 days. And then it, and it's not like I'd be traipsing around Rome or Italy in that time. I'd be quarantined in a hotel room. So it wouldn't, you know, wouldn't even have been fun. Fortunately, I didn't, although I did have colleagues who did. And then I'm going on Saturday to Florida <laughs> to, for, a, for Society and Research for Biological Rhythms. So I'll be hearing lots more about chronotype. Nice. We're presenting a poster looking at whether or not chronotype varies between race and sex groups in cardio. And the short answer is not really. So there's no big differences in the proportion of evening types versus morning types. So I want to take this next step, like we talked about before, and looking at, okay, well, if they don't differ in their preference of timing of behaviors, what about this discrepancy then and when they're actually able to sleep and whether that's related to health outcomes? Very cool. Kristen, it's been a pleasure, as always. Yeah, good seeing you. You are going to be the last official uh, episode of this season. And we take our break when we run reruns, and then we start back up again in the fall. So, so thank you for a fantastic culmination to this, I think, fourth or maybe fifth season. I haven't counted. Well, thank you. Like I said, the journalists like this, and I have to say, you guys can have your science in nature. This paper was featured on Saturday Night Live Weekend Updates. <gasps> wow. I my career peaked. That better be a line on your CV because that's, yeah. that's <laughs> Well, they don't mention awesome. us by name, but we know who it is. Uh, thank you so much, Chris. good to see you guys. No problem. Good Take seeing care. you. Bye-bye. All right.